Um, okay, so I'm going to preach now. And um, how, many, how many guys, or girls, how many of you guys are interested in the Oscars? All right, me? Me? Okay, there's a couple of vague hands. How many, like movies? How many of you like mo- movies? Okay, that's better. Yeah, okay, right, we're good. Well, um, how, many went, how many people went to see the Barbie movie? We t- we t- okay, okay, not as many as I expected. Um, all, the, all this side did, but um, yeah, okay. Well, anyway, I'll explain a couple of things for you then. Um, so we did talk in the meeting leaders meeting about how irritating it is when someone preaches and only uses movies instead of the Bible. So I thought I'd start with a movie and talk about Barbie. So um, there's a bit of a controversy at the moment because Barbie was meant, to, uh, well, Barbie's been nominated for a few Oscars, um, and but it notably also wasn't nominated for the Best Director and the Best Actress uh, nomination. And this has led to some people saying, well, you know, that, that, that's Bar- the Barbie movie, which is a, femi- a, a feminist movie and talks a bit about men maybe dominating over women in the world. And this is just proving its point because Ryan Gosling was nominated for an acting award and Margot Robbie wasn't. And um, it's an interesting debate. I, I personally think it falls down because Margot Rib- Robbie was beaten by women for her nomination and, Margot, and Ryan Gosling was nominated in a group of men. So he wasn't nominated instead of a woman. He was just nominated instead of other men. But anyway, it's an interesting debate for me because I think Barbie has been a bit of a cultural moment over the last year. It's opened up a lot of conversations about feminism, about, it's validated a lot of very real and very important experiences for women. And um, I think one of the things about the movie, though, that interests me the most is I think it's an okay movie. But I think the main reason it's got so much Oscar attention is because a lot of the time these days, we judge things based on whether we agree with what they say, not so much based on their quality. I think a lot of the time our barometer for things is more, does that, does that speak to me? Does that speak to what I agree with? And in this particular example, I kind of think movies has shown that. I think that's why we've got so many awful Disney remakes, because um, they're profiting on popular ideas more than necessarily on quality of original storytelling. So as I speak today, it's possible that some of the things I say won't be the things that you want to hear. And I would ask you perhaps not to judge me based on those things. Now, it's possible I'll get some things wrong. And um, if, if there's any heresy, there's, um, in the absence of Al and um, Gareth, there is uh, Derek and my wife who are on the front row and will probably manhandle me off if I <laughs> completely you know, speak heresy and awful things. However, um, the first service didn't think I did, so hopefully we'll find there. I might get some things wrong, and I'd really encourage you to, to do as they did in the book of Acts and to weigh up everything I say against Scripture, to weigh up the things I say against the words of Jesus. But not everything I say today, I hope, is going to be comforting and encouraging, and if it is, I almost would have failed my job. So um, I kind of want us all to also go on a journey together. I want you to actively participate with me um, if, you, if you write notes, or even if you don't, perhaps write notes, get your Bibles out, follow with me in some of the, the, the passages we go to. And to start off, I'd also love us just to have a quick conversation with the guys around us. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question. I'd love for you just to chat with the pe- pe- people around you about what you think of this question, then we'll discuss it together in a minute, and then we'll launch. So my question is, what is a prophet? And perhaps, um, don't worry, Rev, we're not just doing last week's session, but like... Um, 
what is a prophet? And maybe on the other side, what is a false prophet? How can we tell them both? What do they do? Just have a little chat amongst yourselves. Just find the people either side of you and let's just have a chat for a minute. What, what is a prophet? What is a false prophet? Give you another 30 second warning and we'll wrap up. Okay, let's, um, let's bring it back. Um, it's really good, it's really good from, from this vantage point to see the church chatting together, wrestling together, thinking things through together. A big part of who we are is community. And a big part of us learning together is also wrestling things through, asking each other questions. Um, so I just wanted to get our brains in gear. And I'd love for you guys maybe to shout out just a few. What are, what are some of the things that makes a prophet? Like, what is a prophet? What makes a prophet? Go. Who wants to, who wants to shout me out an answer? What is a prophet? Fruitful. That's, that's a good answer. Over here. A messenger. Yes. Someone who hears from God. Someone who's obedient to God. A gift to the church. That's a, yeah, rich and varied answers. Here, go for it. Someone who stood the test. I really like that. That's a good one. There's some really, really good answers all around here. Speaks God's word. Someone who, to God's people. God's word to God's people. Yeah, there's a lot of good ideas. We probably could go home, but we won't. We'll keep, we'll keep exploring. So there's a whole load of different things that a prophet is and a prophet can be. And I'm, kind of, I'm going to condense it into a couple of key concepts. Um, so a prophet at its very core is, is someone who speaks on behalf of God, often to God's people. There are times where maybe a prophet will speak to others, but is, speaking, is hearing from God and speaking on God's behalf to, to others. Um, I have three categories that I think largely group the different ways prophets often speak in the Bible and I think still speak today. Um, might not catch everything, but I think it will catch most things. So the first one of those is encouragement and exhortation. So today we saw some really good examples of that. In 1 Corinthians 14 verse 26, Paul says, when you assemble, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, and all things are done for edification. And in that context of that particular passage, he's talking about prophecy and tongues and how we, when we meet together, are there to encourage one another, to call things out of one another, and to build each other up. And a lot of the prophecy you'll see on a Sunday morning is for that purpose. It's to edify people. It's to, it's to pull them up. It's to encourage them in God. 
The second um, category I've put is predictions. So, for instance, Chris Vallotton talks about how prophecy is often foretelling or forthtelling. So, foretelling, we look into the future. And if, again, if you look at um, various prophetic books, the book of Isaiah is quite a popular example, um, you will see lots of predictions towards Jesus. You'll also see lots of predictions towards the ransacking of Israel and, and the exile. But these are things that were said and then they came true later down the line. Um, foretelling. What's the foretelling is more the exaltation, encouragement. And then thirdly, you have a lot of warnings. And again, particularly in the Old Testament, but as I think we'll see through the words of Jesus in the New Testament too, God warns his people. And often God does warn his people. Um, if you read a lot of prophecy throughout the Bible, the prophets might speak to powerful individuals. Um, I think for an example might be Nathan goes to David once David has killed, um, David sort of indirectly killed another, a woman's husband so he can have her for himself. And Nathan comes and calls it out and then tells him off on God's behalf and says these will be the consequences and it's ultimately late, it ultimately is meant to lead David to repentance and back to God. Because um, David has abused his power. And I think there's a few times we see that, where prophets are there to call out abuses of power. But we also... Um, what was I going to say? I completely lost myself. But yeah, but the warnings, sorry, the warnings, so the warnings can come to the powerful, but the warnings also come to God's people. So again, you look at books like Jeremiah and Isaiah, and these are often warnings to the people of God that you guys have turned astray and coming are disasters if you do not come back to God. But if you come back to God, he'll embrace you. He'll bring you back into the promised land. He'll bring you into all these great things. And um, an interesting uh, note is that a lot of the prophetic books, well, really, we've, we've paid attention to them retrospectively. So many of the prophets lived their entire lives speaking warnings of things that might happen. One of the key ones was that um, Israel was going to be exiled by the Babylonians and taken over and destroyed. And then they would eventually have to rebuild that city because they were taken captive. Um, and it was once that happened that finally the people of Israel went, hang on a minute, we should have listened and went back to the prophets and started listening to their words. So prophets hold this really important tension for us where they come to us and they tell us things that are hard for us to hear and often things we don't hear in the immediate. We only really hear once the awful things they say might happen, happen. So this is hopefully going to be an encouragement for us to, to not do that, but to, as the people of God, pay heed to some of the things that the prophets say. Um, and I also asked you guys what false prophets are. You know, as with all things, you have the good version, but you also have the bad version. And we could go for a number of different sort of tells or characteristics of a false prophet. But I thought might, what might be better um, is for us to just go to the words of Jesus and see what he says about false prophets. So we're going to center ourselves around a passage where God talks about false prophets. And through that, I think we're going to hopefully unlock a lot of key things that I think are going to be relevant for us as we walk out from this building in about half an hour's time. So um, we're going to go to Matthew 7, verses 13 to 23. Um, so it's uh, the context, just as, as you're finding it, is that this comes right towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, it could be one complete sermon. It might be a collection of Jesus' sermons, but it's a lot of teachings and sayings from Jesus that are telling us how to live. 
he's sort of mapping out for us the way of life that he wants his followers to, to take. And he finishes in chapter seven with a couple of warnings, basically. And the, the, the most famous and the last part of it is the house upon the sand and the house upon the rock, where um, he basically says, if you follow these words of mine, you'll end up like you're the rock, but if you don't, then you'll be on the sand and when the rain comes, you'll collapse. The house you're in will collapse. But um, just before he talks about the house on the sand and the rock, he says these words, which I'm going to read for us now. So um, starting in verse 13 from Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in, and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness." So a nice encouraging passage for a Sunday afternoon. Um, and we're going to break it down and we're going to explore it. Um, there's times when I've read this passage and felt quite, quite fearful of it. But I believe that actually instead of feeling fearful of it, there's lots of life in this passage. And really important lessons for us. That although they are warnings, I really think are going to be good. So we're just going to go into it. So... Um, Let's first, I'm going to break them down to the three sections, the narrow way first. Um, and once we've broken these sections down, we're going to just explore a few implications for our lives. And I'm hoping that we're going to have a, a, a substantial time to pray together after we're done. So um, first, the narrow way. Now, when I was um, younger, and to be honest, even like as I was older, I often would read this passage about the narrow way and the broad way. And I would, just, I would think more about the destination so I would think, well, what this is saying is the narrow way leads to heaven and the broad way leads to hell. Lots of people are on their way to hell. Just very small people are on their way to heaven. Um, okay, I guess that's it. God, why didn't you put more people in the narrow way? But anyway, that's kind of how I would think about it as, as I was growing up and understanding it. But I, I don't actually think this, this um, picture for us is intended about the destination. I think it's about the way. So, I mean, many people follow an easy and destructive path in their lives, and very few live in a way that really, truly leads to life. I mean, we can know this because McDonald's is the most popular restaurant in the UK, and Coca-Cola is one of the most popular, profitable brands in the world. Many of us in this room have Facebook and Instagram. We have things, we do things, and many people go after things that are ultimately destructive for our bodies, for our souls, for our lives. And I think what Jesus, I, I'm not saying he's not getting at heaven and hell, but I want us to open our minds to some other possibilities today, some other ways in which we can see how these passages are linking together. And I believe that the way of life 
that we choose to follow, the narrow way, the way that Jesus just told us about in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get to some of that in a bit, that way leads to life. When you follow my way, it will lead you to life. It will lead you to eternal life, and it will lead you to life. The broad way is the way many will take. It's a lot easier. It's ultimately going to lead to destruction. And then I, I, I think then what he do, talks about next with false prophets is, is meant to expand on that. Because he then goes on and talks about false prophets. And he says, um, so he's talked about this fruit, the tree, the fruit and everything. Um, I, one thing just to notice is that at no point here does Jesus say that a false prophet has, makes bad predictions. So... For instance, I lived in America at the time that this happened, and you guys might have remembered it. Um, at the most recent US election, there were many church leaders who prophesied that Donald Trump would be the next president of the United States. And, and then he wasn't. And that led, again, for many people to double down on that prophecy and say, well, that must mean that the election was stolen or that it was corrupted in some way. And um, that kind of brought into question whether these prophets were true or not. And my, my point of bringing this up is I'm not necessarily sure that in and of itself, falsely predicting something in the future is the way we can tell someone is false in their prophecy. That would actually be quite a scarily high bar, wouldn't it? I mean, Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians 14, I wish for all of you to prophesy in the passage that we just read. And yet, can you imagine if like, you'd be a false prophet if you say anything that's inaccurate? And no one would want to do it. And I don't, I don't think that's the point. The point isn't about your accuracy I don't think necessarily it's the content of the word. It's what the word produces. So when Jesus talks about fruit, he's asking, is what these prophets produce good? So for instance, the fruit of the prophets is meant to be repentance. Now, in the Old Testament, we look at Jeremiah and Isaiah and these different prophets. They are trying to call the nation of Israel and the kings to repent the current way is destruction. You must repent to avoid that destructive path. Um, and even though some of the people who heard that word in person did not turn, ultimately, people did turn on as a result of those prophecies, right? People in exile read the prophets and went, oh my goodness, we were supposed to repent. And we read the prophets in today's world and we see God say these things and go, my goodness, we should repent. We should turn to God. So the fruit of prophecy, the fruit of prophecy is to turn you back to God. That's intended fruit. I would suggest that the fruit of false prophecy is to bring you comfort and excuse. It's to make you feel like, oh, I know Jesus says that, but maybe I don't need to go there. Or, you know, it does kind of say that in the Bible, but I've seen like this famous uh, pastor kind of ignore it. So I guess like, yeah, he's following God. The fruit of false prophecy is leading us into that place instead of leading us into the narrow way. And that's why I want to keep coming, bringing us back to, are, is the fruit leading you to the narrow way that leads to life or is it leading you to the comfortable, easy way that leads to destruction? What fruit is being produced through the things we hear? 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 3 to 4 says, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, 
they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I think, again, in this day and age, it is quite easy to see what everyone else is doing, where they're deceived, or the other doctrines, or maybe ideologies in the world, Barbie perhaps, no, I'm joking, um, that, that um, are wrong, or that we disagree with and say they're deceived. But I actually think Jesus is saying, talking about us, we're the ones who listen to preachers, And I want to ask you, where do your ears get tickled? Where are your ears itching to hear things that will take you away from that narrow way of God and lead you into an easier path? See, another thing that I just um, want to point out here is, is Jesus doesn't seem to be also telling us here what we're meant to do with false prophets. Like he doesn't say, he says, he says about, you know, the, the bad tree will be thrown into the fire. I think that, to me, that sounds like something that Jesus is, you know, he's ultimately going to do. And we're going to talk about in a minute where that leads with the next section. I think the biggest thing Jesus wants you to do is discern. Can you discern good fruit from bad? Now, you can know, ah, oh, that, that's probably not good fruit. Maybe I should not listen so much to that. That's great. I'm not sure Jesus is saying here, so go, go like, you know, oust them out and tell the world. I think he's saying here, are you following the narrow way? Are you able to discern where the narrow way that leads to life is? Um, so let's move on to this, to this third section, this section about I never knew you away from me. Now, when, when I read this section, the question that comes to me usually is... Um, Oh, does, does this mean that, because like, I'd say, Lord, Lord, and I prophesy, and I pray for the sick, so you know, am, I, am I in danger of getting take, told I'm going to hell? And I didn't realize, and oh my goodness, this is scary. And then what would normally happen was someone will say something like, no, Tom, you've given your life to God. It's about grace. Repent and be saved. You've done that. So no, this passage isn't talking about you particularly. You're fine. And I'll go, oh, great. Oh, that's such a relief. I'm on my way to heaven. And that's true. And we are going to go through that in a couple of ways throughout this next half of the, the, the passage. I'm not saying you must earn your way into heaven. God has got a grace. God has paid for your sin. You are, you are saved. However, I think if we leave the conversation there, we narrow our focus of what it is to follow Jesus. We become destination orientated. It's all about the destination. And the truth of it is that Jesus came and said, it's about the way. He didn't say, repent, be saved, and go to heaven straight afterwards. I had a young person ask me recently, well, why don't people just kill themselves when they become Christians then? Wouldn't it be easier? And I was like, yeah, nihilistic, but easier. But that's the point. The very point is is that we're not meant to be destination-focused in its entirety. We are meant to be asking, how do we enact what Jesus said. When Jesus came and brought his gospel, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Now let's, and then he, and then he said, go out, preach the gospel, preach to all the world, follow, follow the commandments, love the Lord your God. He, told, he gave us things to do. So he saves us. We come into the tent, we come into the church, and then we're sent out. We're commissioned outwards to go and share the love of God. That's the point. So I don't want us to just look at this passage and say, is it just saying whether or not I'm going to go to heaven? Like, I think it's more than that. And I think there's a reason this section 
comes straight after, this section in verses 21 to 23, comes straight after the part where he said, look out for false prophets and discern them by their fruit. It's almost like he's gone, look out for false prophets. This is how you can see them. Now let me give you an example of what happens. So we have um, then people who come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, like, we see you. Look at all the wonderful things we did. And he says, away from me. I wonder if there he's talking a bit about these false prophets. Maybe it's a bit like the sixth sense. In the sixth sense, they don't know they're dead. And here, maybe they don't know they're false. I think sometimes we get this picture of a false prophet, of this malignant, dastardly person who... um, you know, a bit like, you know, I kind of think of um, when he says like wolves in sheep's clothing, it makes me think of um, Little Red Riding Hood. And every single picture I've ever seen or, or film adaptation I've seen of the big bad wolf who dresses him up as um, Red Riding Hood's granny in that story, it's kind of obvious that he's still a wolf, right? Like, kind of pretty obvious he's still a wolf. You kind of go, man, how did she not see that? I guess she's a child, that's why. But like, how did she not realize that that was the wolf? And I think we can take Jesus' analogy of wolves in sheep's clothing and see the big bad wolf dressed up as a granny. And I think the point he's really making here is that they look like sheep, they sound like sheep, they feel like sheep, maybe even they think they're sheep, but they're really wolves because of what they're producing. And I think that's why he then comes straight in here and says, They'll say, Lord, Lord, this intimate, familiar term. Lord, Lord, we're here. And he says, who are you? That's ultimately where the fruit leads. It leads down the path to destruction. It leads in the path away from Jesus. Can we discern it? Is this making sense? Is this making sense? So um, I also want us to notice that... um, the people, the th- what are the things that these people tell Jesus they did? Well, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did many wonders in your name. It's interesting to me that Jesus teaches on a lot of things in the Bible. He doesn't do many practical how to heal the sick teachings. He does, does a little bit of it. He sends people out most of the time and just says, go on. He says one thing about, you know, this comes out through prayer and fasting, but A lot of the time, his teaching is very practical on things like loving your enemies and what to do with your money and going out to the poor. I'm not totally sure, I might be wrong, but I'm not totally sure Jesus would be the keynote speaker at a glory and power conference. (laughs) And that's not to say that the power of God is wrong and we shouldn't seek it. It's not to say that healing is bad and we shouldn't desire for healing. It's not to say that we are not commissioned to cast out demons because we absolutely have been told to. However, power without fear and reverence, is extremely dangerous. And we seek after power and signs and wonders on, in and of themselves, it will not lead us to life. In fact, Jesus does have something very specific to say about this. He says in Matthew 12, 39, and then he repeats it in Matthew 16, 4, a wicked and false generation seek a sign. So I sometimes think we have this image in our heads of if only like the power of God rips through the room and everyone gets healed and it's all like then everyone will just get saved and we'll have revival and it'll be fine I don't think God will grant us that 
because firstly, Jesus said that, wicked and false generations seek a sign. And secondly, because really Jesus is pointing us to his way. I think the thing Jesus most wants us to get right is are we following the way that leads to life? It is not easy, but it's the way that leads to life. It is not always pragmatic, but it will lead you into me. It will be good. If everyone followed it, it would basically be heaven on earth. This is the point. You're not all going to follow it. You're going to go down the road of destruction. That's the point he's getting at. However, I think it's still worth just addressing the, 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 the concern that I just kind of made fun of for a minute, the concern of, well, am I, am I saved? Does, you know, could I turn up in front of Jesus? And um, he'd say, no, I never knew you. And I'd be like, well, I'd never realized. Like, I think it's worth just addressing that for a minute so that no one leaves this room fearful or concerned because um, that is not the fruit that I want to produce. So how do we know that Jesus loves, knows us? We know Jesus loves us, but how do we know that Jesus knows us? Well, luckily, in the Bible, he does talk about it. So um, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3, Paul says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So if you love God, you're known by him. Do you love God? Well, you're probably not in danger of um, what Matthew says, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, because you love God. How do I know I love God? Well, he car- it carries on in a couple of different places. So in John 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So there again, I know them, they hear me, and they follow me. But that thing in the middle, I know them because they're following me. They hear my words, they listen, and they follow them. And then in John 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So it's a cycle. How do I know that I'm known by God where you love him? How do I know that I love God where you hear his commandments and you do them? There's sometimes a bit of a dichotomy that's false that we create, um, especially as Protestants, because we see Martin Luther, who says it's all about grace, and he was totally right in the, in, in the world that he was challenging. But I think there's a right challenge to our world as well to say what Martin Luther said in bringing grace to the equation, saying you are saved by grace, was totally right, but we cannot discard works. We cannot discard that. Like If you read the words of Jesus, Jesus 100% cares what you do. I'm not saying your works lead you into heaven. I am saying that there's a tension between what we believe and what we do, and you cannot take one out without the other. There's a saying, um, and I've really forgotten who this was, but um, it says, um, we are saved by our faith, we are judged by our works. Now, there's a couple of places where Jesus does talk about this. So in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 24, the sheep and the goats are basically divided and the sheep are, um, the, sheep are the ones who kind of go to heaven in the story and the goats are the ones who get sent away and um, they ask why. And Jesus gives them the same answer in reverse. So he says to the sheep, the ones who he's welcomed in, well, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And they said, we didn't do that. And he said, yeah, you did. You did it for the least of these. So you did it for me. Jesus prioritizes what we do 
to the least of these. What we do for the poor, for the sick, for the broken, for the orphans, the widows, the refugees, what we do for these people, that's what we do for him. That's our fruit. The rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, oh, all you need to do is you need to pray a prayer and then just believe in me and that I died for you and then it's all okay. No, no. he said, keep the commandments. The rich young man said, oh, I do all that. And he said, okay, if you want to be perfect, um, that's fine. Give all your money away and sell your stuff and give your money to the poor. And the guy goes, ah. And that leads Jesus to say, um, that famous thing about a camel entering the eye of the needle is more possible than a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, he clarifies it to say what is impossible for man is possible for God. So let's be clear here. Again, I'm not telling you the stuff you do is what leads you to heaven, but I am saying it matters. And this man, when he wanted to talk to Jesus about salvation, was talked about his deeds. Even in Revelation 21, which talks about the book of life and talks about the, ju- the judgment day, it still says they will be judged by their deeds, according to their deeds. We have got to take seriously the stuff we do if we only take seriously that we believe in God and he loves us. We essentially have itching ears for a comfortable gospel that doesn't lead us down a narrow road that leads to life. So... Um, Where are we at? Let me see. I'm going to to just read us some examples of things Jesus says. And and we're going to finish soon after this. But I'm going to, because as I said, this passage that I've sort of unpacked a little bit for you comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There's quite a lot of things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have time to unpack them all, but I'm just going to read some of them, make a little comment here and there. I want you to just pay attention for a minute. What does your heart and soul say to you as you hear these words? Because if you're going, oh, yeah, but, oh, yeah, but, there's a possibility that you are uncomfortable and that you have itching ears for a comfortable gospel and not for the way that is good. And that's okay. Because if you recognize it, then we can turn to Jesus and follow that way that he's invited us to. So let me just read some of these for you. Um, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift and go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. I.e., if you're worshipping in church or giving something to God, if I was preaching right now and suddenly went, oh my goodness, like, so-and-so is upset with me, I should be like, guys, see you later. Go and sort it out because that's way more important. In fact, the offering of worship to God is what I'm doing to offer reconciliation to others. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That makes us nervous. Now, an interesting thing about that, and I realize it could be on dodgy ground, I have not been divorced and remarried, and there might be some people in this room who have. I don't intend to offend you, but Jesus says about this thing and links it to adultery. And a saying that I really like, it's from a guy called Stephen Backhouse, and he basically says... um, Instead of trying to excuse ourselves out of things, he's like, if someone comes to me and says, oh, I did this and this, and does it mean I'm adulterous? He goes, yes. But look how Jesus treats the adulterer. In, in the Gospel of John, when he is in front of an adulterous woman, does he say, oh, it's your fault? No, he says he picks them up. 
he embraces them. And I think there is a deeper truth for us when we embrace the fact that we sin and we do not get it right, but God is a God of grace. Rather than we try and excuse ourselves out of uncomfortable words of Jesus. He says, um, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. And he, he makes it worse. Um, why, why does he make it worse? He then says, um, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Don't secretly wish for their destruction. Don't go out and fight against them and try and kill them. Love them. But if you only greet your own people, then what are you doing that's better than anyone else? When you pray, I like this one, this convicts me. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not store for yourself treasures in heaven. No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and you love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I'll leave us with this um, thought, sort of. So recently I, I saw on Instagram, like a famous kind of Christian person that I admire, um, uh, took, him, took, took part in an auction for um, the crown. The crown's finished, apparently. And like um, the, um, the, 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 was all the props and everything, they were kind of bidding for them. And... Um, Apparently, Diana's engagement ring, like the replica, went for £6,000. So I just thought it was an extortionate waste. But anyway, um, the, um, it led Noel and I to have this debate. But how well do we know if we're really in control of our own money? You know, I've, I've heard Christians with lots of money say, well, I know. I know that I'm in control, and I know that you know, I speak to God about it. We just looked at this thing about false prophets and this thing in Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus seems to suggest that sometimes we don't know ourselves. We don't really know what our fruit is. So I want to really ask us, do we know? Because a lot of us here are quite wealthy. What are we doing with it? I, even, I mean, we talked a bit about maybe we should budget out some money to give to the poor, you know? Like, it's really awful when I walk past someone who's homeless and I don't have anything to give them. Even then... I was like, I caught myself and went, oh, but I've budgeted it. I've got to be prepared to go over the budget. Otherwise, I've set out something that's comfortable. Let's bring us back to the prophets and then let's pray. And I, I will, we will slightly run over to pray. Um, if you don't mind, I feel like maybe that would be an important thing for us to do at the end of a word like this. So some parents might need to go collect their kids in a couple of minutes, but I'd love for us to pray. Um, but I want us to just bring us to the prophets. Just bring this round full circle. We started with asking about the prophets. The prophets talk about the things God cares about very unequivocally. So in Micah 6 verse 8, and in the Talmud they say that this was Micah summarizing all 613 laws into three, which I think was very helpful of him. Um, and he says, 6 verse 8, Micah, he has shown you, mortal, what is good. So what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I love it in Amos 5, 21 to 24, where he says, I hate and despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. And he goes on to say all these things he doesn't like. Don't bring all your burnt offerings and your worship to me. I don't want that. But and the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. This is possibly going to offend K. Marie, but like he's saying, he's saying, I don't care about it. Because what I want to know is 
Verse 24, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Do you care about justice? Do you care about, do you, do you walk in justice and mercy and humbly with your God? That's what I want. That's who I want you to be. That is the narrow way. It's not easy, but it leads to life. We don't really have a choice if we want to go for life. We always have a choice, but you know what I mean. So as I said, does this mean what I'm saying here, that we're not saved? Of course not. We are saved, but it matters what we do with it. So how can we respond? I'm going to suggest three ways we can respond super quickly. One is we repent. We turn ourselves back to God. Um, we can do this personally. We can do this corporately. We'll probably end up now doing a bit of both. Repentance isn't all about saying sorry for your sin. It's just turning ourselves back to God. It's the fruit of prophecy. Secondly, we live generously and we give to the poor. And we don't just budget things, but we think to ourselves, how can I live a generous, justice-orientated life that loves others? There's a lot of things Jesus says about all of that that you can read. Thirdly, I think we need to pray and live for justice. Now, there is a Sunday, this, um, this Sunday uh, nationally is, is racial justice um, Sunday across all the churches. So I'd suggest that might be one place we can start, but there's a number of other places we can go. I looked up this just a little bit because I was kind of interested. It says, uh, there was a stat that says in, t- in 2022, 109,843 racially motivated hate crimes were reported in the UK. Um, The Guardian also reported last year that a third of people from ethnic minority backgrounds have experienced verbal or physical racially motivated abuse in the UK. I believe that we should join with our brothers and sisters from across the country and other churches and pray that God brings an end to this sort of stuff. We're currently dealing with a a debate in Parliament where we're talking about what to do with refugees whether we perhaps should send them to another country. And I don't know what you think about that. But we are told in Hebrews 13 too, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I want to be a hospitable, welcoming, justice-orientated person beyond I want to be anything else or align myself to any other ideology. So I want to be someone who follows that narrow way someone who follows the way that's hard, but it leads to life. If you want to do that with me, why don't we stand and why don't we just pray for a minute? I'm going to pray out loud um, just to fill the space. And I just want to encourage you just to pray out loud for a minute. Wherever your heart leads you, does your heart lead you towards repentance? Are there things there that have challenged you? Do you need to repent? Then I would encourage you to start doing that now. Start praying that out loud. Maybe you are, you're stirred to want to bring generosity and be generous. And I'd encourage you, start praying that out loud now. To pray, God, stir my heart towards generous living. Stir my heart towards the poor. Stir my heart towards the needy and the ones less fortunate. Maybe your heart is being stirred towards justice. That could be racial justice. Perhaps that is justice in the Middle East or in Ukraine, places where wars, even genocide, is taking place, where children are being bombed to bits. That we want to see justice for those people. 
Maybe it's thinking about the cost of living, the poverty line in the UK, the amount of people who are currently living on the streets. But let's use our voices, guys. Let's raise them. Let's pray for these things. Jesus, I pray that you bring justice on the earth. Jesus, I pray for your goodness and your mercy and your humility to come on the earth, Lord. I pray that we become people who walk justly, who desire mercy, who desire love. Jesus, just pray for us. Let's just keep raising our voice, guys. Lord, just we repent. God, I repent of the places where I have chosen my own way, where I've chosen comfort, where I've chosen to be, um, to have my ears tickled. And God, I just want to follow that way, that way that is yours ultimately, the way that is narrow, the way that is hard. Lord, I pray that you'll help me to discern the fruit of those who are speaking for you and the fruit of those who are speaking so that I can be comforted. Jesus, I just pray for your mercy on me. I pray for your goodness to surround me, Lord. Please show me how I can live out your goodness, how I can live out your way. And Jesus, we just pray for racial justice in this country. We pray that anyone who walks into these shores, anyone from another ethnicity, anyone with different social classes, that people who come to this country are welcomed, are loved, that justice is done, that there is an end to hate crime, there is an end to um, places where people are hurt, where people are beaten down, where people are even killed. Jesus, I pray for your goodness and your mercy. Let's keep praying. Just for another minute, guys, let's keep praying. If you need to leave, that's okay. But why? let's just raise our voices. Let's bring ourselves, let's stir ourselves before God. Jesus, let's just bring ourselves before you. We love you. We desire you. Jesus, we desire mercy on the earth. We desire, desire justice. We desire to be challenged by your words. Let your words that challenge us sit with us. Don't let them leave us. Don't let us get to a place where we can just comfortably ignore the things you say. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Lord. We love you. We love you. We desire you. And Jesus, just as we bring this meeting to a close, I just pray for each person in this room. I pray for your love to emanate throughout, that as we leave, as we sang in the song, that we leave and we let our love go to all those around us. Jesus, I just pray for your peace, for your justice and your mercy to be what characterizes us church as a nation.